Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Adam Butler and Rodrigo Gordillo from Resolve Asset Management Global. Our special guest is Preet Banerjee, Partner and Director at Wealthscope. Preet is also the founder of Money Gaps, a new startup geared towards providing investors with light financial advice. He's also finishing up a PhD, which looks at the value of advisors and the value that they bring to the financial planning relationship. Today, we're gonna to be diving in and spending a bit of time talking about both. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Great. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. It's been a, it's been a while since I've chatted with uh, Rodrigo and Adam and the guys at uh, Resolve. First time meeting you, Pierre. So, yeah, uh, yeah my pleasure Welcome. to be here. Thank you. I was just thinking about the last time we got together yeah. was in a, a boardroom at Macquarie. No, no, no. Which would have been... Time... No. no, last time we was got together was a job. Oh, we had together was and he was telling us that he was like starting this his PhD. So... When oh, was there that? You go. Right. That must have been. Well, I guess that would have been 2014, 2015. Yeah. That's right. And uh, yeah, because I'm just. <laughs> You're just finishing it now. I thought I was going to finish early. Yeah. I'm, I thought I was going to finish early. And now I'm like. I got the email saying, listen, if you don't submit in the next year, you're not getting your doctorate. So it's like, all right, I guess I'm, I guess I'm in my last year now. If you're not being threatened to publish your thesis as a PhD member, then you're not getting a PhD. That's, that's what I've come to learn. Most, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Most PhDs last six to eight years. It's part of the journey is to yeah. make you suffer and feel inadequate. That's right. Yes. Constant guilt. <laughs> you're almost done. Almost done. So what so is the thesis? Done. What's the thesis? Um, what are you working on? The thesis is, my research question is looking at quantifying the value of financial advice specifically across different delivery channels and specifically in Canada. And it, it all stemmed about, so I had written a book uh, and it was, it was interesting. My supervisor, Bleed Hejazi, is a prof at uh, Rotman at U of T. And he was the first person who said, you know, in your book, you talk about how people can get an easy A with their finances if they do a couple of simple things, kind of like the Pareto principle, right? You know, focus on the 20% that drives the 80% of results. And I did position the book as, look, this is not going to give you an A+. This is going to get you the easy A. Because going from A to A+, it's diminishing returns at that point. But to do the basic things like make sure you have, you know, uh, risk management strategies, insurance strategies, you're saving enough, you got a diversification though. That stuff is relatively easy compared to, you know, the more advanced optimization stuff. And he said, well, you know, why don't you use that sort of framework um, to look at the world of financial advice? And so I had to think on it and I thought, okay, well, there, there's something to that because the world has slowly been changing. It feels like the world's been really changing a lot more quickly in the last couple of years. But historically, the value of financial advice has always been, been positioned in a very portfolio-centric perspective. And you can see why that would be the case because, you know, there's tons and tons of regressions you can run on portfolios. And, the, you know, this industry is filled with people who like to work with numbers. And when you have access to numbers, it's easy to just sort of get in there and slog away with numbers. But from a contemporary point of view, 
the industry had been moving away from portfolio centricity to planning centricity. And so all these measures of the value of financial advice in the academic context were still sort of based on portfolio centricity. Whereas the practitioner journals and people in the industry know that there's so much more to it than just that. There's the behavior modification, the coaching, as well as insurance, estate planning, tax optimization, and all this and that. And so uh, the research question first involved coming up with a framework for measuring how well people are doing. That's not portfolio centric. And then, uh, and we can go as deep as, as you want to in this stuff. And then measuring what channel of advice moves the needle when it comes to how well people are doing. Because again, one of the other, I think, issues that have been highlighted is there's a lot of studies that look at correlation, but not causality. And essentially, you've probably seen some of those studies that say people with advisors have more money, therefore advice is, is great and end of story. <laughs> of course, there's so much more to it than that. I mean, and that's probably true, but you can't sort of make those leaps by just saying because people have more money when they have advisors, it's because of the advisor. And so we wanted to, I wanted to sort of dive a little bit deeper into, into some of the causality as well. So yeah, okay. I, um, I was just going to. You know, there was that, uh, Cyrano study, which, uh, came out a few, uh, 16, 2016, I think prior to that, it was 2012, but it was updated and showed that, that, um, investors with advisors did 2.67 times better than investors who were unadvised. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, uh, I'm curious to find out, you know, what it is, what your thesis is. It, yeah, uh, has discovered, especially because yeah, I, I think when something goes that pop, I think everybody read that and, and we had Vanguard talking about the advisor alpha, whenever it goes yeah. that viral, I always question the validity of something like that. It was, it seemed like a way too simple a metric, which is how, I guess how you need to communicate it to the world to, to really get to the bottom of if there was some alpha and why there was any alpha. So maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I think, and I think you would agree that there, there can be great value in advice and sometimes there's negative value in advice as well. And that's part of, that's partly due to just the structural conflicts of interest that have been created in, in the industry over time. Um, there's certainly agency effects, um, and lots of studies have shown that when there's an informational asymmetry, agency effects can be exacerbated. Meaning that if you've got a world that's getting more and more complex and the principal doesn't have, you know, financial literacy or a basic understanding of not only what the financial landscape looks like, but how it's been so rapidly evolving over time. And you've got an agent who is compensated in a manner that is not in line necessarily with the best interests of the client. I mean, you're, you're, it's a structural conflict of interest. Now, that does not mean that you cannot rise above a conflict of interest, but it's a huge hurdle. And so agency effects are, are big. And as a result, you know, we've seen uh, industry evolution from, listen, go back to, I don't know, uh, the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. May 1st, 1975 was May Day um, in the industry. That's when the SEC deregulated commissions. And so up until that time, didn't matter how many stock, how many shares you were buying, who you're buying it from, it was a, it was a regulated cost per, per share. Uh, across the street. And when you deregulate it, everyone thought, well, this is the end of advice. 
right? It's going to spawn the growth of discount brokerages, which it did, but it didn't get rid of advice, right? The industry evolved to say, all right, well, the landscape is shifting. We need to evolve as well. And so there's always this sort of cat and mouse game when it comes to how the industry is sort of set up and as consumer preferences shift. But when it comes to these correlational studies and the first version of the Cyrano paper, I talked to the lead author, Claude Montmarquette, about it. And he even said, you know, and I quoted him, it's in the Globe and Mail. He, he is on the record saying, I would not be going around saying what the industry has been saying about this study. They've kind of taken one thing out of context and really sort of, you know, driven that home. And, and I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. The follow-up version of their paper did sort of address more some of the, the, the selection bias um, that was identified in the first version of that paper. But um, in that first version, if you took a look at some of the survey questions in there, um, I think one of the flaws was if you had said that you uh, were, were using an advisor for 15 years, let's say you were using an advisor for 15 years and then you fired them, and then you took the survey, you were counted as unadvised. And so that kind of throws out the, <laughs> the results of bad advice <laughs> yeah. and lumps it into this one category. And it's, it's kind of like survivorship bias mm -hmm. in mutual fund reporting, right? If you throw out all the bad outliers, then it's going to artificially inflate the average. And they address some of that in the, in the second version. So the second version of that paper is a lot better. Um, but at the end of the day, what I wanted to take a look at was the endogeneity um, of the principle of the investor. And so when I set up the uh, survey that I used in my research, um, not only do I ask things like, how much time did you take picking your channel of advice, whether it's a human advisor or do it yourself or whatever, how much time did you spend making that decision? Are you, did you go into that relationship wanting to delegate, um, or did you go into that looking to be completely autonomous and just use an advisor for execution purposes? Why did you approach advice in the first place? Because we kind of know that, you know, the way that the industry is set up, you go after people that have money, right? You don't go after people who don't have money. There had been no economic incentive to do that. And that's starting to change now, but historically that had not been the case. And I also wanted to look at the motivations. Um, and so when it comes to the different facets of advice, um, who was responsible for the decision that you made? Did you go to an advisor saying, listen, I've got 2000 a month that I want to save. You show me how to deploy it. Well, who is responsible for that, that savings amount? Is it the advisor? In that case, no. In that case, it was an endogenous factor, right? It was the investor saying, I've got this money. I just need help with execution. And so one of the things that I'm trying to look at is who is responsible for changing the financial well-being of a household? Another example would be, we know that a lot of people will go and seek insurance when they've just had a kid, uh, as opposed to someone going and saying, I'm looking for people who've just had kids because I know that they need insurance. They don't know that because them doing that is different than someone seeking it. And, you know, I think as I've sort of talked a little bit about my research in, in the industry, financial advisor circles, investor advocacy circles, I think some people, for some reason, want to try and pin me down as saying, are you pro or anti-advisor? I'm like, I'm agnostic to that. I'm trying to figure out what is a good model, which models work. And when we find out what makes more sense, then consumers and the industry is going to be better off if we have a better understanding of what we should be doing and where the value is in these relationships. What are some of the ways that advisors 
can add value. Like let's, let's start there. I mean, you mentioned that advisors are often evaluated on the basis of how they improve portfolio outcomes. But I know that that's a sort of a narrow scope of, of how they, they might add value. So what are some of the other ways and, and how might you rank the relative importance of these Mm. different ways? Very good, um, sort of addendum to that question there. So one of the sort of early iterations of this framework for financial well-being that I was uh, kicking around is this dynamically sensitive multi-factor model. And so if you think about the factors of someone's financial well-being, it is very similar to sort of, you know, what you look at as a financial planner. You look at, you know, savings rate, you look at, you know, portfolio optimiz- optimization, costs, um, insurance coverage, uh, do they have estate plans in place, et cetera. So each of those can be a factor, but the really important part is each of those factors' importance will vary in how important it is, depending on where someone is in their financial journey. So each of those factors, it's great to identify them, but then you have to also, let's see, well, how important is this? So let me give you an example, uh, disability insurance. If, um, if you're 64 years old, and you don't have disability insurance, your score on disability coverage might be zero, but how important is that zero in the overall context? It could be also close to zero because if you've done everything else well and you've been saving diligently, you've invested well, you're effectively self-insured at this point. If you become disabled and unable to work at 64, you're not screwed, right? It's an inconvenience and there's some, you know, uh, obviously some, some emotional impact to that. But in terms of your financial plan, you're fine, right? You just have to retire one year earlier. If you're 24 and you become disabled and you don't have disability coverage, you're screwed, right? You're, you're destined to be broke or to rely on the charity of others. So the weight of that factor, that wealth factor in your overall financial well-being score is massive because this is one of the most important things is being able to protect that asset, that, that, that human capital, that as of yet unearned income. And so each factor has a varying degree of importance depending on where you are. So, you know, cost gets a lot of um, attention, but if you're starting out from zero and you're putting in a hundred bucks a month, if you had a 5% MER portfolio, as an example, it's what, 20 bucks in the first year or something like that. It's nothing, right? If, you know, um, if you just inherited 10 million bucks, you could be old or young, then costs become more significant. And so... Each of these factors of wealth have varying levels of importance in terms of what your sort of overall financial well-being score, if you were to normalize it out of 100. So what this allows you to do is you could go to anybody and you could say, okay, well, based on these inputs, your age, income, you know, what you have, this tells me on a score of 0 to 100, your score is 70, yours is 20, yours is whatever it is, and you know that based on people like them, this is how well they're doing. So that's that, that's a very critical point because then when it comes to causality, the optimal design that I would have liked is to do a, you know, a longitudinal study to like a diff and diff study. So a, a difference in differences to tease out causality. So what that means is we want to see whatever that score is, how does that score differ over time depending on the different channel of advice that you're in? So if you're full service, robo-advisor, do it yourself, how does your score change over time? And then you can start talking about <clears throat> causality. So 
Uh, I'll give you an example. This is a conceptual sort of example. But if you take a look at the current, we'll call it RoboAdvisor 1.0, you could argue that they're very expensive asset allocation execution services. Because if you look at, let's say, full service, for argument's sake, let's say it's one, one and a half, whatever it is, and do it yourself if you were like, I don't know, asset allocation ETF, 20 basis points. And then you look at uh, a RoboAdvisor, maybe it's 75 all in. And some people say, well, that's uh, that's cheaper. That's a that's a really good bargain. And you say, okay, well, if you look at all these different factors of wealth, what is the expectation of change along these different factors over time? And when it comes to debt reduction, I am unaware of a robo-advisor that will say, hey, don't give us this money. Pay down your 20% credit card interest debt first. Um, so it may not be the best sort of option. It's sort of assuming that you have determined that giving this money into this service is the most optimal thing to do. And once it's there, hey, we've got this, you know, Nobel Prize-backed research methodology behind, behind portfolio um, construction to, to, to give you. Uh, but when it comes to do you have the right insurance, do you have an estate plan, you know, wills, powers of attorney, uh, all that stuff, maybe your incremental score on those factors is close to zero. And so when you add up all those changes, you see maybe there's a good change on the portfolio. It's a let's say it's a perfect portfolio, uh, but it's only one one factor, and all those other factors, it's close to a zero differential in in terms of the score. Now, once you have a, a better framework of the overall value from a holistic point of view and the cost, which is a little bit more explicit these days, you might say, well, wait, you know, that's actually not as good of a deal as as maybe a lot of people are making out to be. And maybe an option that is more expensive, like full service advice, if you're getting a good advisor who is saying, hey, listen, you need to optimize your taxes by doing this, and you need to pay down this debt, and it's okay to have a mortgage because interest rates are low, and uh, and what have you, they might move your score incrementally across a number of different factors. And so once you have some kind of framework for value, the cost conversation has a lot more context. It seems like those types of decisions or those different dimensions of advice, you're just as likely to encounter a narrow focus from a human advisor as you are from a robo advisor, right? I mean, the ro somebody programmed the robo advisor to focus on the portfolio allocation and to not ask questions about credit card debt and current mortgage status or whether they own a home or um, whether they have a will or whether they have children or are planning to have children. These are, seems to me that these are all questions that can be integrated into the workflow and logic of a robo-advisor if the incentives were there in the same way as they, they might be integrated into an advisor's process and that the robo-advisor actually at the end of the day, given the systematic nature and the potential to maybe evaluate and optimize on multiple dimensions may have an edge over human advisors in, in many situations, right? So I guess my point being, it's less about the robo versus human and more about the number of dimensions that are explicitly um, attended to as part of the initial planning conversation and the expertise of the advisor, again, robo or human, to be able to um, effectively provide advice 
and facilitate a, a plan and execute a plan for that individual. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I you know at the end of the day, it it, it seems to me that the the paradigm shift is from portfolio centricity to planning centricity, and there's multiple modes in which you can carry that out. It can be human based. It could be algorithmically driven. And it's probably going to drive towards the center into some kind of hybrid mm -hmm. model where, you know, things like, um, you know, that, that planning centric checklist that kicks off a financial planning engagement can be automated because this is not, it's not difficult to capture. There just hasn't really been incentives based on, on planning behavior, right? All, all behaviors in the financial services um, historically have been very much aligned with product, investment products, insurance products. And you can use those to fulfill a financial plan. And there have been a lot of people who said, listen, the way we differentiate our practice, our business is by, you know, providing value on these other areas because we know that's important to the client. We may not specifically get compensated for telling someone, listen, you need to pay down that credit card so that you'll be in a better position down the road. In the end, that will probably end up being the case as they have the ability to add more to their assets and what have you. But there hasn't been that specific link. And so unless there is some kind of model that incentivizes planning centricity over anything else, um, it just means it's, it's a slow moving evolution towards that. But we are moving towards that because portfolio management is being more and more commoditized. In fact, don't you guys, haven't you guys kind of like commoditized your portfolio approach? Like, don't you have products that other advisors can buy that says, I want to do what the result Absolutely. guys are doing? Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. It, it, and I think is, more advisors should move towards it's that. Certainly, you know, when it comes to all of this, a lot of it has to do with the values of the advisor and the values of the advisor tend to attract clients that have similar values to them. And so it's an interesting dynamic because you end up, if you're a portfolio centric advisor, you're going to self-select the clients that care about, you know, how am I going to reach my retirement goals? Well, I'm going to give you a killer return. If you meet an insurance centric advisor, how am I going to meet my retirement goals? Well, insurance is the solution, right? You know, uh, to a hammer, everything's a nail. And so it, it really has been interesting to see like you said, what are the incentives? You know, what is going to cause an, a company, a, 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 a value proposition to be incentivized to give some stuff out that will not make a money in the beginning, but hopefully in the, in the tail end of things it does. And I kind of agree that this, this that robo-advisor seems to be getting ahead of the curve. Like you see them going after people with very little money and saying, we're not going to charge you anything for your first 10000 or a hundred thousand, and then we're going to charge you, right? And so if you don't care about that first hundred thousand and you realize that there's value add 10, 20, 30 years from now from saying, Hey, pay down your credit cards before you give us any money. And also think about disability and also all these things that are not going to make me a lot of money through a couple of questionnaires, some videos and some content, some email marketing. Then on the tail end of that, you might be able to get paid. Um, and, and, and you, you gain their trust, right? It's really tough for an individual advisor, like has a certain value oh, set you know, to say, I'm not, I'm going to take your money and I'm, I'm going to do all this work for you and I get paid at all. It's just not the way the industry works. It's not how the incentive works. So that's why it, it's such a tough yeah. slog. 
it's such a tough slog for an advisor starting out today to build your practice in the traditional way, which is you start from scratch and you start with small clients and work your way up. Man, that is such a tough proposition today because the next generation of investor, A, distrusts the industry. Um, it's David versus Goliath for them. And they don't care if you have their best interests at heart. They're saying, no, it's I'm on team David, you're team Goliath. And I'm just never going to seek out traditional advice. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to invest in Hail Mary bets in crypto because what, what do I have to lose, right? So um, this makes it very tough for a young advisor in the business. Um, at the same time, um, you know, advisors, young advisors, I would say maybe advisors across the board are dealing with a lot of uh, hurdles due to sort of just the regulatory structure in terms of, listen, an emerging issue that I see is that uh, if we take a look at just the sheer number of people who own cryptocurrencies and the number of advisors who are told you're not allowed to to give advice on cryptocurrency, it's like, well, you're preventing them from doing their job, right? If you don't give them access to the ability to at least analyze the fact that they are going to hold, let's say, cryptocurrency, whether you like it or not, how does that fit into an overall financial plan and their overall portfolio dynamics? Um, that's kind of an issue, right? And so on one hand, I see this this struggle from young advisors saying, why do we have all these archaic sort of tools and ways of doing things when we see changes on the ground? And you keep telling me this is a flash in the pan. I don't know if it's a flash in the pan. I think that things have shifted uh, quite permanently going forward. Yeah. I also think that there's the younger generation especially, but I mean, increasingly Gen Xers and younger millennials are increasingly used to and comfortable with um apps um algorithms um you know virtual interfaces right um i do think that there are certain dimensions of people's lives that they would prefer to speak to a human about um and i'm not sure i think that landscape shifts over time too like i i think that even many of those things will be subsumed by software over the intermediate term. Um, but it's hard to sort of reconcile as a 30 year old, being able to download Robinhood or the FTX app, or, you know, any of dozens of, of apps you can have on your phone to inter interface with your robo account or with your crypto wallet or what have you and see how simple it is to, to track and trade and, um, have everything of that's meaningful to you in that domain at your fingertips and then go to an advisor where everything seems so slow moving, so complicated. Internet Explorer. <laughs> what are you yeah, doing, man? <laughs> right. You know, it, it, I, it, like be, millennials don't want to go wait in bank lineups, right? Like, no. It's, yeah, no. it's, they don't want to commute downtown to visit an advisor. They don't want to go to see an advisor in their hometown in a strip mall and, you know, feel like they've got to dress up and go yeah. talk to some guy in a suit. <laughs> like it, yeah. it all just seems it's a theater of the absurd that has sort of been handed down from prior generations. And, and, um, I think it's going to, it's going to be one of the first areas that, that may be vulnerable to being eaten by by software right oh um, you're so right on that i mean there's so god just as you're talking there's so many things we could talk about um you know when you mentioned robin hood and low count minimums and what have you on one hand this has been amazing for financial inclusion 
getting uh, people access to capital markets who traditionally never had it before. That's amazing. At the same time, it's so easy and drawing so much on, you know, behavioral finance and getting people, incentivizing them to think about investing like gambling. I mean, you can see across the world, across the world, um, this is a standard playbook now. Get people to sign up for your online trading app by offering them a free stock, which could be a buck. It could be 4,000 bucks. <clears throat> right away, your your mentality, the, the default is, I ah, want. this is gambling because mm -hmm. I'm getting in yeah. and I'm rolling the dice to see what kind of first stock I get. And when I make mm -hmm. my first deposit, I get confetti on my screen, which has this dopaminergic response in your reward center and says, I need mm -hmm. to do more of this. So it's a double-edged sword, right? Um, on one hand, great for inclusion. On the other hand, encouraging all the wrong behaviors when it comes to um, investing. But you know, the other thing I wanted to talk about as you were um, talking there, Adam, was um, this idea of you know open banking, um, which does not exist in Canada yet uh, officially. Um, but if you look at uh, the UK and the EU, there are some versions of open banking that have taken place. And so a lot of people are thinking about, all right, so what is going to happen eventually? And they've, they've evolved from thinking about banking as a service and banking as a platform to wealth management as a platform and wealth management as a service. So to, to explain what is kind of blue sky stuff, to explain what this could portend for this next generation, think about when we say, you know, wealth management as a platform, what does that mean? And what does that, how is that different from wealth management as a service? So, so, Think about, you know, Apple products. You know, you have your your hardware, your Apple iPhone, your tablet, your MacBook, whatever it is, and you've got the Apple Store. This is the infrastructure, right, of the Apple ecosystem. The services are the apps, right? And so once you're on the platform, you can then say, well, I want this service, which is, you know, this one tells me what the weather's going to be. This one handles my email. This is my scheduling. This does whatever. Think of that being applied to wealth management in the future, where the incumbents who had the infrastructure all built up, like banks, brokerages, and whatnot, because those are capital-intensive things, but they're not competing with fintechs of the future who have better, faster-executed, beautifully-interfaced ideas. And so the thinking is that they're going to eventually form this, this symbiotic relationship where they go, okay, incumbent, you provide the infrastructure, like the hardware and the app store. And then we'll provide the service. The fintechs will say, listen, I am an asset allocation service. So mm -hmm. someone's got their investment account at your bank and they add this app to allocate it according to this service for a buck a month or whatever it is. And we're, we're starting to see early sort of precursors to that in Canada already, like that company Passive that attaches onto, I think it's Questrade. And you basically go on and you just sort of create your own set of rules about here's my portfolio, here's when to rebalance it. And then you can choose to either get alerts to tell you when to execute it, or you can give it right access to Questrade and it'll actually execute those trades for you. So you've programmed it yourself. It's five bucks a month or something like that. So I see that being applicable in the future for things like tax optimization, budgeting apps. This, these can all be services that you just sort of use the existing infrastructure, which is big and old and slow moving but it still has a lot of power. Um, but this is what the next generation of investor, this is what they're getting already with things like Netflix and whatever. It's, it's just a matter of time before it happens. But I will say that there is, I, I think Adam, you speak of a future where every individual is a fanatic of tech and do it yourself and figuring 
the many facets of advice on their own with a couple of screens and some writing. The truth is that going back to values, there will always be different sectors of the population that are more or less technically inclined, more or less uh, willing to engage with humans. I mean, we engage with a lot of technically oriented people, but I'm also surrounded by my wife and my two children that could care less about tech. I, like, that just, I can see all ages of people like my wife that will always prefer and give value to the human touch. If you, I think the future is indeed in the hybrid where you can get the, you can read all the stuff online. So you're educated when you go talk to the, the individual advisor and say, listen, I think I understand this. Am I understanding it right? Walk me through this and make me feel good about this decision where they're using the same tech but holding people's hands and, and maybe adding some more value. So for example, I was getting some more life insurance and I went and did all my research. You know me, I'm technically oriented. And at the end of it, I'm like, mm, maybe I should talk to a local that knows about this stuff. And indeed they just knew more things, right? Because they had experience in the area and they were able to guide me in the right direction. I don't think advice ever does go away, but there needs to be a, a bridging of advice with really strong tech so that, so that you can have both things. Right. And then also the last thing I'll say about that is that I remember when well simple approached us in the beginning saying, listen, we're thinking about doing a, a joint product where we're going to manage everybody up to $750,000. And then anybody after that, they're going to, they're asking for things we can't give them. I'll send them over to you guys. Right. Do you remember that? That was kind of one of their first business models where, you know, there's a point where even the techiest of uh, investors want to finally go to the club where people want to talk to them and can give them the time because it's worth it financially. Right. So yeah, segmentation no. never dies. Right. I mean, um, I think the sort of like the near term is you see, uh, technology solving the problem of getting better advice to people who traditionally don't get access to any That's type right. of planning centric advice. So this is people with under a hundred grand. They're in the early accumulation phase. They're, they're, their planning needs are relatively simple and much more easily solved by more cookie cutter um, sort of algorithms. But as you get to the need for more bespoke requirements, this is where humans, it's still a long ways off because there's, there's so much more to it, right? When it comes to complex engagements. And so right now, you know, we've heard a lot about the so-called advice gap and how eliminating DSCs would create, create an advice gap. There's always been an advice gap. And the advice gap has always been if you are just starting out, um, you don't have access to higher quality advice to the same degree as people who have lots of money. And so, um, again, near term, I think that, you know, the hybrid models will evolve to cater to higher volume uh, light touch advice uh, for people who don't need a financial plan yet, like a comprehensive book, right? Which no one reads anyways. Um, they can get those things um, satisfied with a simple, beautiful interface. And then that will put them into a position to better take advantage of more bespoke advice, which I don't think is going away anytime soon. Yeah, the, there's, there's, real, there's real limitations to what, artificial intelligence can do. Uh, there's, you know, there's really, there's no substitute for, you know, the compounded knowledge of, of someone who's been in the industry, uh, as a practitioner for 
10, 15, 30 years, whatever it is, um, assuming, assuming they're good at it. <clears throat> but I think what you said, uh, pre, you know, the, uh, the bespoke factor, there's real limitations on what apps can do, uh, no matter how good they are. There's, there's, there's questions that, you know, to your point, there's questions that they don't ask and there's there's limitations to, you know, all of the sort of fluid or abstract factors that, that went into those decisions, you know, assuming, assuming you're speaking to, to a wealthy individual who has all their, you know, their ducks in a row, um, versus someone who wants to put their ducks in a row. Uh, there's, there's still so much intuitive process that really can't be, you know, uh, conducted by a machine just yet, but, but, you know, maybe, maybe the, the gap that we're talking about is where, you know, uh, a machine, uh, a computer, you know, an AI is used to, to do all of the commoditized stuff, but the individual is there, the, the professional is there to, to do all of the things that the machine can't do. Yeah. I think advisors slowly migrate towards the role of a therapist, really. Um, yeah that that human element is um critically important and and you know i i don't want to suggest that the the hybrid model or an algorithmic solution is a panacea because one of the biggest challenges is adherence you know you can give someone the perfect prescription you can go to a doctor they can diagnose you perfectly and say all right we know exactly all this medical technology and hundreds of years of research tells us we know exactly what is wrong with you and we know exactly how to fix it here is the prescription. And then I don't know what the percentage is, like 60 or 70% of people actually adhere to the prescription to the letter. And so when you look at the efficacy of these prescriptions and you say, oh, it's so much lower than we thought it would be, it's because people aren't actually following what was prescribed. And that is a very difficult thing to do. Um, second guessing yourself, especially when you have access to more opinions, more algorithms or what have you, that in itself becomes another challenge to navigate and so, you know, some of the best, uh, oh, you probably heard this, the best portfolio is the one you can stick to, right? Maybe it's not perfectly optimized. Maybe you don't 100% agree with, you know, philosophy X, and you know that this philosophy is, is suboptimal, but you can stick to it and you have conviction. And at the end of the day, you, that would have been the better solution for you because you would have been more likely to stick to it. So, yeah, there's still sort of that, that little bit of a, I don't want to say black art to it, but there is that, that X factor as well that we have yet but to almost, solve. I want to pull a, yeah, go ahead. I want to pull on the thread that Pierre, um, exposed there, right? Pierre, you said an advisor has a role to play, an important role to play, um, assuming they're good at it. And I want to, I want to pull on that <laughs> thread a little bit. Right. Um, and I, and I'd love to hear from you, Preet, on what you, how, how you would advise investors as they are seeking high quality financial advice and, and, and high, high quality financial advisors. Um, I mean, I think this information asymmetry issue is an almost insurmountable challenge and the signaling mechanisms that are used in the industry often run are, are 
are at best orthogonal to and at worst run counter to the type of information that investors might use to find an effective advisor. So what has what your <laughs> research led to, led to you to, to conclude? So I haven't done any specific research on that, but I agree with you. And when Pierre mentioned it, I, I sort of said, yeah, that's there's sort of a big proviso there in that you're assuming that you've got a good advisor. So there's a lot that we could unpack there. Um, I think that the most effective solution to narrow this this gap between people getting a better shot of getting good advice from an advisor is turfing a bunch of the deadwood in the industry. That I'm just going to say that outright. There's too many people who are brought up in a legacy system where it was, hey, I, I'm recruiting you in. Listen, your job here is to uh, to do what's in the client's best interest um, and think about the change you're going to have in their lives. And by the way, if you don't generate <laughs> 200,000 commissions, we're shifting you down the commission grid and effectively constructively dismissing you. Uh, so... Which is what it? is yeah right, so, <laughs> and so you know the training. I mean, let's be serious. The bar is way too low. Um, luckily, there are people who get in, pass that incredibly low hurdle, and continue to improve and evolve. And they are genuinely interested and are doing the right things, and they're constantly upgrading, upskilling, and what have you. There are too many people that just see this as wow, this is an incredibly great way to make money if you're good at sales. And so, to a certain extent. I think, to the point earlier, if you want to increase the likelihood of getting better advice, we have to turf out a number of people that we know are just not giving good advice. Um, regulations and the power to collect fines, there's not enough teeth there. Um, very powerful industry lobby groups, et cetera, what have you. Park that for now. So that, I think, is the sort of the, the first thing I would do if I had the power of God to say, oh, how do we fix this problem? I'd start there. But in terms of saying, okay, that's not an option. W what do you do? I have no idea how to genuinely answer that question um, because it's been a question that I've been wrestling for a long time because I know that there are great advisors out there and I know that there are some that are you know, less than scrupulous as well. And when I think about, can you design a checklist that says, well, just give this to a, an investor and every time they're thinking about using an advisor, you know, have them ask these questions and tick these boxes and that's all you need. And That'll get you part of the way there, but not to a point where I'm super confident to say, hey, I could give this checklist to my mother and I know she'll be fine. I don't know of a checklist that is that good at this point. So it's, um, it's a question that I think is going to be solved by consumer preferences changing over time. Because again, they've, you've got an entire generation who has grown up with this backdrop of um, Wall Street gets bailed out on the backs of the little guy. Um, I've seen, you know, my parents lose their jobs during the great financial crisis, whatever it is, they have this certain level of distrust. And as more and more people started to share information online, because now that's available and you learn more about compensation practices, sales quotas and whatnot, and the ease at which you can get free information, good or bad from communities, um, is steering people to getting advice in different ways. So uh, there's a, I think it's eToro in the EU discount brokerage account. Um, and they've doubled down on this community-based advice. And they're seeing the writing on the wall with Wall Street bets and whatever. People are going to 
different parts of the web to get their advice, again, good or bad. And with eToro, there's now a function where, you know, you find someone who's participating in the community forums and you like how they think. You say, well, you click this button and your portfolio will execute the exact same trades in proportion to the size of your portfolio as this person's portfolio. So they're getting non-professional advice from community. And, and we're seeing this trend with the next generation. They are turning towards community-based solutions when it comes to advice. And that is where they're moving. So unless the industry figures out this problem, but how do you get rid of the dead wood? You're just saying, all right, well, there's, there's, there's more likelihood that these, these new investors are going to turn away because you're not showing that you're doing anything to address the source of their distrust. And I don't know if we've crossed the Rubicon or not. I and suspect so we have. You put together a, a bit of a scorecard, maybe, you know, some, some sort of categorization and, uh, areas of interest for the full wealth plan and be able to figure out at your age group, which one's more important to you. Couldn't you create almost like a rotten tomatoes of financial advisors where that becomes the backdrop? You talked about a questionnaire and it could be a opt in only, right? Cause it, it, there's incentives for an advisor that has all those elements to opt in to be that person and allow their clients to anonymously vote on each one of those things. So you could have you know, this is what I want. This is what, <laughs> so this algorithm gives me, this is what I need. This can match me to 10 guys that voluntarily went in and have, you know, a hundred of their clients, uh, answer the question. And, and now I have a narrow set of willing advisor participants that, that seem to give me a solution that I could interview. Cause right now it's like, I can't find a dentist that I trust. Like it's always the same thing. It's uh, oh, do you like your dentist? Ah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll sit down with your dentist and do that. Right. There's nothing really like a Rotten Tomatoes, and that's the only <laughs> way I watch movies today. I think, uh, well, that's interesting because I don't know if you saw, but so Eternals is coming out, and it got review bombed on Rotten Tomatoes because people were upset with uh, the LGBTQ representation in the movie. Um, and so it got, I think, the worst-rated MCU movie. But the uh, audience the score is what rate, I go after. Uh, just because people it's hurt. Always the audience score. It's Mike Dave Chappelle uh, is the same right. thing. It got killed in right, Rotten right. Tomatoes for the LGBTQ community and all that. But the audience score was like 97%. Right. So th this is where it's like the, the crowd. So this, okay. this is a really interesting problem, right? Because so, and I go back to an example of um, the Naval C Academy in the United States, and they've done a variety of studies on teacher efficacy, right? And one of the studies evaluated or yeah, they evaluated student performance as a function of their progression through using different teachers in different subject areas. And then they contrasted that against the scores that the students gave the teachers, right? So students were able to evaluate the teachers at the end of every uh, course. And then the students were tracked as they're progressing in that subject matter, right? And what they found was the teachers that the students gave the highest ranks to ended up preparing them least well for how they would perform um, going forward, right? The basic message being that humans are not very good and, and the more complex the field and nonlinear and path dependent the field is, the less likely that the average person is going to be able to 
understand what the criteria that they should be using in order to evaluate whether something is effective or someone is effective or ineffective, right? So I, I feel like yeah. that would be, in the end, highly destructive, right? You're, it ends no, up being a popularity see, contest not, I think, on... Think about what I just said. You know, I talked about the categories and areas of importance. And you, you got your, let's say you got your critic score, which is Preet and his team. That says, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? You volunteer to come into my platform. Do you do all these things? No, yes, no, yes. Okay. Now you get a score based on that. That's pure. That's the, the first part of your questionnaire, right? And, and then you have, that's, what, yeah, that's, that's a, a critic, critic score. score. And then right? the audience score the is audience like, score. hey, do you like this guy? Right? Is he good? Is he, is he personable? I, I, there, there is a way. And I think this, there needs to be a Rotten Tomatoes of absolutely everything. And I, and I uh, volunteer Preet and his whole crew to make, make it happen for us. So what do you say, Preet? Well, they, I mean, they, don't they, I mean, don't people have all these ratings for teachers and doctors and yep. already like you can yeah, go but, and, you know, you like, can go and look like at a Adam practitioner's said, record those and are, see what reviews they've those gotten. Are, those are all, the a, that's a complex field. Like it's just, yeah. how do you feel about this guy? Rate him from zero to five. What I've just described, again, is much more nuanced and I think useful. But again, Pre, what do you got for us? Well, sure. Like a doctor, a, a doctor could have a really shitty bedside manner, but, but be a terrific that's right. actual physician. I have, that's, my doctor. Practitioner. that's my doctor in Toronto. Right. 100%. Ex-lawyer. <laughs> yeah. 15 minutes jerk, in and out. Best, if you're, you're late, you know, you're a jerk, if you're late you're for a minute, doctor you in town. It. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. I get there. It's a, the appointment's <laughs> at 11. I'm there at 11. I'm a minute late. It's over for me. And he reads all the papers I send him. He's amazing. There's There's another wait, dimension. Wait, before you add, Pierre, Pierre, Pierre. I, I want, another I want Preet to I wanted, answer if yeah, he's got yeah. any thoughts on that. I don't want just to change gears. Want, like, like, just, is yeah, there anything ahead. like that that you're contemplating that you thought about? Um, and not in terms of rating advisors. I think that is, that is a tough nut to crack because there have been services that have attempted to do that, uh, for over a decade. Um, and some of them were pay to play, right? Um, some of them were, Hey, you get a badge that we certify that you're one of the good guys, but turns out pay all you have to do is really just sort of pay or pay for the advertising of it. Right. So the earlier systems had been gamed, I think. Um, and I think this kind of doesn't get away from the issue of the next generation of client, of financial consumer. Their default is, I'm not going to use uh, a traditional model of advice where it's uh, human-centric. Um, I could see that they're definitely going to need some kind of human involvement, but to what degree and when is, I think... The, the changing variables. So in that case, I think the, you know, the formulas, they kind of standardize advice on, so the less complex situations. And I think that ultimately is good because uh, on the less complex situations, low asset levels, uh, low insurance needs, there's, there's nothing, right? There's, there's mm -hmm. not a really a lot going on at that end of the spectrum. So with scale and formulas, you get better advice at that point. And then at some point, um, will there be human engagement? Maybe you can better sort of quantify the, the qualitative nature of that, that relationship, because it's always sort of grounded in sort of these, these standards. Whereas now there is no uniform sort of standard for what a good, what is the optimal strategy for this person? You go to eight different advisors, you get eight different strategies, right? 
Yeah, but again, you you kind of categorize insurance. You you've categorized insurance, portfolio management. Um, uh, well, I guess disability is part of insurance, but uh, you know, estate planning, wills, and estate, like all that. Those are different areas that are easier to quantify. If you if you're thinking about a full wealth solution, you'd have to have those elements and be be able to offer all of those things. And as you mentioned, it was an interesting point you made that more in certain brackets, age brackets and others, but that's a way it's not just about the portfolio management side of things. Oh yeah. Yeah. I see what you're getting at. I see what you're getting at. Yeah. There's, there's uh, so this kind of comes to, there's like the quantitative side of things and the qualitative side of things. And I think the qualitative is where, uh, you know, the human has more of uh, a part to play. Um, I think the quantitative becomes more standardized over time because that is what technology is doing, right? And um, but at the end of the day, yeah, that that qualitative thing. When you ask people to measure, I mean, you're asking someone again because that informational asymmetry. They don't know what is the right way to measure this this person's service. They don't know. They're they're basing on what they can measure, which is, do I like them? Are they nice to me? Are they responsive? Um, and those might be necessary, but they not might not be sufficient for the optimal engagement. So what are you most excited about? You, you, your work, you're about to, to finish up your, your PhD. What are you most excited about working on today? Um, so I did uh, uh, found a company called Money Gaps, which is uh, light financial planning software. It's B2B. Um, is how we launched it, but um, I see, I see a version of money apps being adopted into some more hybrid, consumer-facing um, model going forward. I'm very optimistic about that. It essentially it it gives people grades, so it gives them a grade for every category of their financial life and an overall GPA that tells people, well, compared to people like you, you've got a B or whatever, and you've got an F in estate planning, but you've got a B on education savings or whatever. And I see this again, this is for the lower end of the complexity spectrum, the, the simple sort of financial planning needs. Um, it should allow for a higher volume light advice model. And so, um, you know, the, the work that I'm doing in my thesis is, um, was the springboard for money gap. So I was halfway through the thesis when I thought I need to commercialize this. This is going to be where the future is going. There's a massive gap in the market. And so um, I'm most most excited about uh, the applications for for money gaps. Um, we're working on some new visualizations. One of the things that we realized when we were doing some testing with with um, people, we showed them here's your one page report card. And the design philosophy with money gaps is every report that we generate should be so simple that no one needs to explain it. You could just print it or email it and not say a word. And if people don't intuitively understand it, we're not doing a good job. So the main report is just a one-page report card that gives you, just like your report card we used to get in school, subject, grade, teacher's notes. And right now, we dynamically generate the teacher's notes, so they're they're based on the actual analyses, but we'll allow advisors to customize them. Um, but I see this as being... Um, an area that's going to explode, and that is light advice, light planning for people who don't have, you know, six-figure portfolios. Let's talk about in our podcast how pervasive these 54-page financial planning reports are that nobody ever reads, but it seems like somebody did a lot of work and it's so robust, and I feel like 
you know, I'm paying for this, this massive and, and useful piece of advice. Well, we also tend to gravitate towards a single page report as to where people stand. It's, it's, and even like the report cards of the past have become even simpler as I see my kids' report cards today. You know, that it's not zero to a hundred here and where we're at. It's again, I think three letters and they, they mean different things. You just know you're, you're on track, you're, you're kind of not on track or you're, you're, you need some help and that's it. So the simplicity of it is uh, for the user interface is I think going to be key. We just started working on one feature update. Um, we wanted to actually visualize people's cash flow. So are you familiar with sand key diagrams and how they show flows in like, usually it's using like government budgets. Um, so we're using that for people's personal budgets. And, you know, when you show it to someone, they're like, oh my God, this just seems to make more sense. It's like Neo seeing the matrix in code for the first time at the end of the first movie. Before it's just like, you see all these numbers, you know, and all this, you're know, like, what does that mean? But when you actually see a physical picture of the flow, like, well, here's your income, it's 10,000 a month and 2000 goes to the mortgage and looks like a thousand is going to, you know, going out to dinner. And when you actually see it, I think it helps people who are not numbers focused to sort of have a different perspective of their money. So again, you know, really trying to create a beautiful experience because that is not like the 54 page analogy. Um, we did an impromptu survey of people to see how many times they read a comprehensive financial plan. It was less than one because very few people read it twice and a lot of people never read it the first time, right? And not to say that they don't have value, there's something else in the relationship that is driving the value. The comprehensive financial plan is necessary for a lot of people, but it's unnecessary for a lot more people but that doesn't mean that they should get no planning, right? It's been binary. It's like this or nothing. Well, no, that's not the right way to look at it. How do you overcome the garbage in, garbage out problem? Um, I mean, it's a little bit less problematic when you're diagramming the channels of spending and somebody's budget, right? But obviously, as you get further out the value spectrum, um, it gets more ambiguous what the right answer is, right? Like it, how do you grade, how do you grade somebody's portfolio? For example, in order to grade it, you need to have some sort of set of objectives and assumptions, right? Um, so, I mean, I know that's probably the hardest or the place where garbage in, um, manifests with the, with the largest proportion of garbage out, but it's, it all kind of exists on a spectrum, right? So. And I feel like in, in financial planning and investing, there's so much complexity, there's so much path dependence, um, that there actually are very few areas that you can objectively grade without injecting some set of assumptions or objectives, um, or priorities. How, how do you think about that or? Yeah, it's a great question. Times. That's that's why we went B2B first, because we tested it in a B2C environment. And as I was checking the inputs people were giving into these various different gaps, um, so we, we call them gap analysis for this, these different areas of their finances. As we looked at the inputs they were giving, they were completely wrong. They were completely misinterpreting what anyone in the industry would know is, no, that's, that's not what we mean at all. And so um, if you have the incorrect input, um, I mean, well, you know, anytime you're projecting for a long period of time, 
you get one digit wrong. And instead of retiring at 90, it's like, oh, you should have retired before you were born. I don't understand what's going on, right? Like it's a huge impact if you make one small mistake. And so the amount of, you know, like helper text required for a B2B solution is way less because people who are dealing with this in a regular basis, they're in the industry, they, they know the answers to these questions to try and give enough information and context for a consumer to enter the right information for the level of analysis that we were doing, which is still elementary, um, was, was going to be quite a, quite a bit larger of an endeavor. So, um, big proponent of the lean methodology and, um, and so quickly went B to B and say, all right, this is the fastest way to get to market and sort of give us proof of concept and product market fit. And so that's what we did. Um, and in terms of things like portfolio in money gaps, we don't even look at portfolios. Um, we are portfolio agnostic. Um, we will assume, and what we find is like a lot of our users will use ancillary, uh, programs or products. So they have their tech stack, right? And some advisors will use the more sophisticated planning software in tandem with money gaps. And they'll say, well, I'm going to segment. And for the more simpler, less complex situation, I just can use money gaps. And when necessary, and we need to do the detailed year by year cash flow, Monte Carlo analysis, whatever, I'll use, you know, product Y. And, and so there are trade-offs that need to be made. And that was one of the tough things for me because I am more numbers focused and I kind of like getting, you know, a little bit more detail. And I, I had to disabuse myself of that notion with this product because again, the product, the market failure is getting better advice to less complex situations. And so I have to go less complex, which, which is against my nature. It's a tough thing to do, but um, the trade-off is there's some things that you do just sort of have to give up on say, all right, well, it's, it's not going to be great for everyone, but it's going to be pretty awesome for our large bunch of people who are missing out right now. You, you, you needed to have that complex mind to identify the problem and the problems, the solution to that. Or a lazy mind, you know, it's the path of least resistance as well as another way of looking at it. <laughs> it just seems like as I, I, I find the problem fascinating myself, right? And there's, I think there's, there's ways to make a quantitative workflow more qualitative. I'm just sort of thinking, um, you, you allow people to set market expectations, but you provide guidance, right? Mm -hmm. Your, what is your approximate asset allocation with like percent in stocks, percent in bonds, right? Did you know that over the last hundred years, this is the range of outcomes over your investment horizon for this typical asset allocation? Do you believe that we're going to have above average returns or below average returns over your investment horizon? So they get a little bit, they can express their preferences and underneath what's happening is some sort of Bayesian, um, decomposition based on the historical data and the conditions, et cetera. Right. So you're sort of allowing people to, ex to first of all, have a guideline for what they, um, the preferences that they express and give them some control over the algorithm, right? Um, which we know from the psychological research, individuals or humans are much more comfortable with algorithms, even if you just give them a little bit of freedom to sort of express yeah. their preferences in the context of the algorithm, right? That's a great, so great, it's a great example because, so under the hood, so, so 
the one component that does deal sort of tangentially with with portfolios is the retirement income calculator and money gaps. And um, the only thing we allow you to sort of say about your portfolio is what's the asset allocation. And based on that, we we sort of prescribe, here's the rate of return we'll use for that mix. And what's really interesting is that we dumbed it down so much in terms of what it can do because, um, do you know Jin Choi? Um, yeah. he, so he, he developed the engine for me and it's a very sophisticated engine that includes mean reversion in terms it would of be being if able Jin to engineered it. <laughs> yeah. With probability analysis and all this stuff. It's so cool. And then I was like, yeah, listen, we're just going to switch to deterministic. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> it's there, but we just turn it off inside and it's like, it's there and it can do all this cool stuff. But it's like, yeah, if people wanted that they probably want a whole bunch of other things as well and they need just a an overall more comprehensive engagement and that's not what we are about so that was one of the the darlings right. i had to kill <laughs> i'm going to silence for that yeah, adam's crush <laughs> r.i.p <laughs> good well um you're concluding your thesis um Anything else you wanted to say about some major, maybe counterintuitive conclusions that you came to as a function of all of your efforts? Um, I don't know if it'll actually end up being counterintuitive because, you know, I think people who are in the business and have been in the business for a while giving advice, you kind of have seen some of the themes that I think will emerge in the data, but they've never really been sort of quantified in studies. Things like... Yeah, yeah, it's true. People who are already doing pretty well who end up being your best clients, it was mostly because of them, but maybe they ran out of time to do things themselves or they reached a point where because they've done so well, their situation is so complex, that's why they need specialized advice. So the level of endogeneity in uh, people who are doing really well with advisors is probably still largely due to them um, mm -hmm. and just how life unfolded for them. But maybe some of those same factors that led them to that led them to think, well, um, I can still do better by getting the right advice. And so I'll spend some time and find the right advisor to work with. So again, I think that's kind of a dude. In fact, you probably know, like the people that end up working with you, you probably feel that they're probably a little bit different than the average person. Right. Mm. Um, and I'm guessing that your typical client is probably a little bit more sophisticated than the average client. Right. And, uh, and you kind of gravitate towards each other. So, um, I think it's a very blurry sort of, you know, sort of the whole causality issue, but there's some things that we kind of say, well, this kind of makes sense. And we kind of know that it, good advice has value and, uh, but there's more to it than that. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be any huge revelations, but I, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's been worthwhile work. I don't want to downplay or say that it's been a waste of time at all. I've certainly learned a lot of things, but just sort of saying, ah, yes, that makes sense. I can connect these dots now based on what I've seen and now I've hypothesized and, and what have you. So I'm pretty excited for it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm in the last stretch one more month. So we'll say six weeks. Um, Do I have to call you doctor be, after uh, this? Pretty much Amazing. done. So very excited. <laughs> doctor Banerjee. I, you know what? I, uh, I, you'll get used I to it. I would feel uncomfortable with that. Yeah. <laughs> doctor, doctor? <laughs> I think, I think, um, I think my supervisor said, uh, for the first year, it's okay. And then after that, just, you just prove it. Right. <laughs> fair, fair enough. 
So how can people find you and, and make the most of the work you're doing, get the most out of the work you're doing, Preet? Yeah, I think the best sort of central hub is just my personal website, PreetBanerjee.com. It's due for a revamp, but it'll link to everything that I'm doing. You know, if I put out new videos on YouTube, new podcast episodes, um, when I start putting out some white papers based on my research, which will probably start happening next year to sort of like unpack these sort of singular items out of the research, because there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack in there. So to make it a little bit more bite-sized, both for industry and uh, and consumers alike. So yeah, just uh, preepenergy.com. And um, uh, there's a newsletter you can sign up for there as well. You're alive on Twitter as well and, and social media? Yes, I, I have a Twitter account. I don't use it as much as I used to, but um, maybe, I mean, everything died as I started doing the the research. So once that monkey's off my back, then maybe I'll probably get a little bit more active on social media. So at Preet Banerjee, both Twitter, Instagram, Beautiful. and YouTube. Yeah, looking Fantastic. forward. Well, look, sounds like you're doing really interesting work, and we look forward to seeing the trajectory of what you bring to the Yeah, I look forward to seeing you guys in, uh, in the flesh again in the future one day. But uh, thank you so much for having me on, on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. One last question, Preet. Thank you. Um, so would you rather question, would you rather spend a week in the past or spend a week in the future? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I like the unknown. Uh, I think the week in the future, because I don't know the week in the past, there's a lot of great weeks I could pick. That's for sure. But, uh, I like the newness and, and, uh, the adventure that awaits in the future. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Preet. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Preet. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye.